Now, if you have a request, go ahead and lift your hands in prayer. I have a request, our Father, is that you would receive glory through this exposition and that Jesus Christ would be radically and clearly proclaimed and that when people are finished, we would have a greater appreciation and love for him and him alone. This is about you. This is about God. The worship team has made that clear. The songs that we rehearsed and celebrated are all about Christ. Christ, the solid ground. I'm thankful for a worship team that doesn't focus on, on itself, but it helps us to focus on you. Our life is you. You are our life, both in death and life. And so make yourself known. Be clear. Keep me from error. Anoint our ears to hear the voice of the Spirit of God. Break through the ears that are clogged with indifference or unbelief. Clean out the ears here of people who are upset about some issue at home or in their personal life or at work or with the kids or a disappointment. Make a clear road straight from the ear down to the depth of their heart. And may they leave radically freed, understanding in a better way what you have said in your scripture. I pray this for the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Anthony Ray Hinton was sentenced to death by the state for two murders. And the state sent him to death row, and there he spent 30 years. The entire case rested on one thing. It's hard to believe that he would send a man, sentence a man to death, resting on one, one thing. Three bullets were found at the crime scene. Three. And they brought in a man who was allegedly a gun expert. And they, this man said that the three bullets found at the scene matched an old revolver that belonged to Anthony Ray Hinton's mom. And they found it in her home. And he said, the revolver matches the three bullets. Guilty as charged. Off you go to Holman Correctional Institution where you will spend the rest of your life until they put you to death and kill him. Years later, when a, a Christian attorney began taking Anthony's case, he started to examine the gun expert. And so he hired three top-notch gun experts himself. One was head of the FBI gun division for examining bullets. The other two had worked for the U.S. military in the same capacity and then worked for the state of Texas as their experts. And then they had worked in the prosecutor's office for Dallas County as gun experts. And he had all three of them, independent of each other, examine the same bullets. And all three of them, independent of each other, said, it is 100% impossible that these bullets came from that gun. Whose testimony do you believe? That's our problem with the New Testament with regard to the role of women. Whose testimony do you believe? Paul in Colossians or Paul in 1 Timothy? What do you do? Well, you examine both testimonies. 
That's what they did with the bullets. They examined the testimony of the first guy and the other three guys. Brian Stevenson, Hinton's attorney, discovered that the expert was legally blind. Legally blind. He was not an expert, not qualified by anybody. And he didn't know how to run the machine that they used to test the bullets. <laughs> so what appeared to the public was a sham. It was a mask. And so he went behind the mask and started probing and investigating, and he found dirt. But this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Colossians first, see what it has to say. Then we're going to go to 1 Timothy 2 and see what it has to say. And they're going to be contradictory to you. And so what are we going to do? We're going to investigate. We're going to go behind the English translation, the mask, and figure out what Paul said. That's where we're headed. There are a lot of, uh, it seems, uh, contradictions in the scripture. In fact, for example, Paul says in Galatians that if you are circumcised, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, you're obligated to obey the whole law. And yet in Acts 16, Paul took Timothy and circumcised him. It's like, Paul, what are you doing? You said, don't get circumcised, then you did it. In Galatians 2, he says, carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in chapter 6, verse 5, three verses later, he says, oh, everybody has to carry their own burden. It's like, Matthew says that Judas went out and hanged himself. But Luke says he fell headlong and his intestines all burst out. So who's right? Do you see the contradictions? What you have to do is examine more deeply. So let's go to Colossians. Let's have a look and see what Paul says. First of all, Colossians 3. <clears throat> Verse 15 of chapter 3. Let the peace that Christ gives act as umpire in your hearts, because you were called in one body to peace and become thankful. Verse 16. Let, uh, your Bible probably begins with let. Let sounds like Paul is giving permission, uh, but this is only due to the weakness of our English Bibles. Uh, it's an imperative. What's that mean? Paul is giving a, an order here, a command. Just like the command to love one another, this is a command in verse 16. It's not a suggestion. It's not even an indicative statement. It's a command. This is what is supposed to happen. Let the word about Christ. Paul never uses that word again or that phrase again. What does it mean? Well, in the Greek language, it's in the genitive case, which means that it has a whole bunch of ideas stacked into it. Let me unpack just quickly. When Paul says, let the word about Christ, he is saying, let the word that Christ has spoken, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let the word about him that we find in the epistles, all the way from Romans to the end, and all the references to Christ and the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Let the word about Christ, the words he's spoken, the words that are said about him, the things that are impacting our life because of who he is and what he has done, let that word, notice it's word, not the image. The Christian life is all built on words. That's why our Bible has no pictures. It's all words. Why our ears are the gateway to our heart, not our eyes. These are the most undependable 
senses that we have in our, in our bodies, our eyes, are so deceivable because people wear masks and we don't know what's behind the masks. Let the word about Christ live permanently, take up residence permanently among you all. You is plural. Um, so I said you all, but your Bible probably says among you, but in the English you can't tell the difference between you singular and you plural. This is all. So what's Paul doing? He is saying that the word about Christ that we find from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the Bible is to take up permanent residence in all of us as a community. It, it should dominate us. Not a Sunday morning visitor, but a permanent resident. It's the same word is used in Leviticus 16 of God who dwelled among the 12 tribes of people. There were three tribes in the north, three tribes in the south, three tribes in the east, three tribes in the west. So God's presence dwelt permanently in Israel's camp. That's the idea. Paul is saying that everything that's written about Christ needs to basically take up every room in your life, every category in your life. You're a parent, you're a husband, you're a dad, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a Christian, you're an employer or an employee, you're a student, you are responsible for money, you're responsible for going places. All these things that you are in life, let the word of God come and dominate every category of your life. Let no category or subject in our life be free from the influence of Christ, what Christ has said. So Jesus is everything, is influencing everything in our life. It's a powerful statement, and it's an order. It's a command. And who's it supposed to touch? Just the men? No, it's, well, notice. Let the word of Christ, or the word about Christ, Come to dwell permanently among all of you richly. Meaning what? You ought not to be poor in terms of Jesus and what he has said in your life. Like he only, he only affects what you do Sunday morning. No. Extravagantly, let every, every category of your life be touched and influenced by what Jesus has said or what they have said about him. Uh, I, I think of an analogy. It's not perfect. It may be even dumb. But here goes. Think of your, your life as a library. And the library has different rooms. There's a science room, perhaps. There's a, in the library, there's a aerospace library, there's one about cars, there's one about food, there's one about clothing, there's one about athletics, and every room in that house is to be filled with books about Christ in some way. That's kind of the idea. Probably it's not the best. But the idea is richly, abundantly, every room at a category of your life. Now why does he say that? Well, it's to, it's to live permanently in us in all wisdom. As you, and the next two words are present participles, ongoing, this is what you do for the rest of your life, as you are teaching and admonishing each other. 
So he is telling us that if you want to be a teacher and an admonisher, you're qualified by what? How do you qualify for this? You are credentialed by letting the word about Jesus Christ dominate every facet of your life. That puts you in a position now to what? Teach each other and to admonish each other. Let's first of all talk about these two words. Paul uses these same two words, admonish and teach, in Colossians 1.28. Look at that verse just for a minute. Paul could have said here, as you talk to one another, or as you speak to one another. He doesn't do that. What does he use? He uses two words to describe authority. Verse, chapter 1, verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, Christ, what? Admonishing every person and teaching every person in order that we may present every person, what? Complete in Christ. So, the church is to be a teaching community, an admonishing community, a Christian Christ-focused community, and all of us together are on the team to do exactly what Paul and Timothy were doing. Teaching each other, men teaching men, women teaching men, women teaching women. Do you see how inclusive it is? Do you see how he doesn't put any, uh, any barriers to women in this verse? He didn't say, oh yeah, uh, by the way, I don't want the women to be doing this. No, admonishing and teaching what? Each other. With all wisdom. As you teach, as you admonish one another. They're both in the present tense. It means this is what you do for life. This is what we do for the rest of our life. And then he says, and as you sing in your hearts. Not necessarily here in church, although that would certainly uh, include it. As you sing in your hearts psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing with thanksgiving or grace in your hearts to God. Now, this isn't part of the message this morning, so if you want to shut off, that's fine. We are to be a, not only a, a teaching community, an admonishing community, all heading towards completion in Christ, but we're to be what? A worshiping community, a singing community. And how are we qualified to do that? If we allow the word about Christ to dominate our music life. To dominate the music we listen to. That's why he calls it heart. Our hearts listen to music. Paul says, let the music you listen to and the music you sing be to God through Christ. Let Christ dominate your music, your playlist. Because if you don't allow Christ to dominate your music world, you are unqualified to teach and to admonish. Now just think of the blessing that a man or woman could be if in their worship life, their singing life, their heart life, their teaching life, everything is Christ. The love of Christ, the warnings of Christ, the love of the Father of Christ, the submission to the Word of God of Christ, His sacrifice, His humility. Imagine living with that kind of a person. Well, we can be. <laughs> this is what we're supposed to be. And that's why, or that's how, we come to be complete in Christ. The key to being complete in Christ is to have, what? The word of Christ be the dominant feature of our lives.
And the Christian life is growing into that. Now let's ask the question, are there any problems with this verse in terms of disputed words, disputed meetings? Are there any problems with this verse? Yeah, there's one, but it's really simple. We don't know exactly what Paul meant when he said psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We can't, with precision, identify what he means. All we do know is that whether we sing a psalm or a spiritual song or a hymn, that they be, what, drenched with Christ. That's what we do know. But otherwise, we know exactly what this verse is saying and what each word is saying, each term is saying. There's no controversy. There's none. So let's summarize. What is Paul telling us to do? What is he ordering us to do for the rest of our lives? To be driven by the word of Christ. Every category of our life, every category of our life is seeped and drenched with Jesus Christ. All right. Let's go to the next passage and notice the contradiction. Paul wrote Colossians probably somewhere in the mid-50s in the first century. The next epistle we're going to look at, 1 Timothy, is written in the early 60s. So there's a possible 10-year, maybe a 5-year gap between these two letters. The first letter is written to a whole congregation. 1 Timothy is written to Timothy, who is his emissary at Ephesus. So let's go there. Verse 11, a woman must learn, that, by the way, is the only command in the passage, the only imperative, as we would say in language studies, a woman must learn, and the Bible may say in silence, but take a look at the word, the same word in verse 2, we must pray on behalf of kings and all those in positions of authority or in high places in order that we may lead what? A tranquil and quiet, there's the same word, quiet life in all godliness and proper conduct. So a woman must learn how? With a quiet demeanor when she's learning. Of course, men need to do the same, but here in, in Ephesus, there were some rowdy, rebellious women. In fact, in fact uh, Paul talks more about women in 1 Timothy than any other epistle. Some women had even turned to follow Satan as part of the false teaching team uh, in 1 Timothy. That is the main problem in 1 Timothy. So Paul says to these women, a woman must uh, learn, but notice women must learn, but do so in silence with all subjection. Subjection to what? To what's being taught what's being taught in the scriptures. A woman must not teach. Now here I'm reading from the original text. Uh, I'm not going to read from the English version. A woman must not teach, or I am not allowing a woman to teach so as to dominate a man, but to be in silence. And he goes on to explain with an explanatory word in verse 13. First Timothy 
2, 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 are dominated by problems. Like, for example, the word or the phrase that I just read, I am not permitting. I am not permitting. If you trace that phrase all the way through the New Testament where Paul uses it, 100% of the time, no exceptions, 100% of the time, he's not talking about a universal principle that covers everybody, but he's talking about a unique individual situation going on in the church. Secondly, look at the word that in your Bible is translated exercise authority. It's the word authenteo, but, the, but the, in, the, in the infinitive form, authentain, authenteo. Your Bible says exercise authority, right? Or something like that, right? Now, as an English reader, you read that word and you think, oh, that probably means exactly what Paul has always meant when he talks about authority. And we would be totally wrong. But most people think that, and they've been taught that all their life. And it's false. Authenteo is our word. Where else do we go to find the word authenteo to see what it means? Okay, let's take a trip. Let's go through the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Let's go from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Malachi chapter 3. Where do we find it? We don't. It's never used once in all the Old Testament. All right, let's go to the New Testament. Matthew 1-1, all the Revelation to Revelation 22. Let's find Paul's use of this same word or somebody else's use of this word. Where do we find it? We don't. It's never used. <coughs> Really? Yeah. This is the only place in the entire Bible where it's used. So where do we go to find out what it means? We could go to a lexicon. <laughs> and you know what all the lexicons do? None of them translate it as exercise authority. <laughs> Isn't that funny? None of them do. And we'll look at this more next week. If you trace Bible translations from the second century all the way to 1940, None of them translated it like the translators do today. Not one. Like the King James Version that you were raised on? What does it say? Usurp authority. What does usurp mean? Not slurp, but usurp. I know we don't use that word a whole lot. What does usurp mean? If you're usurping authority, what does that mean? Overthrow. What's that? Maybe overthrow. Yeah, you're, it's an overthrow. There's... Somebody is dominating and intimidating and they're trying to wrestle control away from someone and that authority has never been given to them in the first place. It's like bullying, being a bully, trying to take something that's not yours from a weaker person. From the second century to 1940, people who were speaking this language, <laughs> people who spoke Koine Greek, who knew what it meant, they translated it as domineer, basically. Domineer, or to act the despot, or act like a dictator. Let me explain how that would work out. Have you ever met someone in church who comes in and he thinks that he, or it could be a she, who thinks he knows it all? Maybe he's young. He thinks he knows it all, he's powerful, he's smart, he's got a lot of knowledge, and he tries to now impose his agenda on the church even though he's not in authority. 
What's he doing? He's doing this work right here. He's trying to usurp authority. He's trying to domineer when he has no given authority. Or here's, here's one, here's an example. Let's say you're at the park with your kids and you're with some other couples. And you all have toddlers running around and they're having a good time. Then one of the kids starts bullying another one of the other kids. And a visiting couple to the picnic goes over and picks up that son, not, not their child, and starts disciplining him right there. What's he doing? What's that visiting couple doing? They're taking what? Authority that's not theirs. They're usurping your authority if that child is your kid, right? That's what's happening here. We have women who are part of the false teaching going on who are trying to bully their way with their views on whatever it is they're teaching. And Paul says, can't do that. They must learn what? First of all, in quietness, learn Scripture first, and then you can teach. It's the same qualification for Colossians 3. First you get trained. First the word of Christ lives in you richly, and then you can teach, and then you can admonish. This is what Eve did. This is exactly what Eve did with Adam. She dominated the situation instead of dealing with it as a team. It looks like Paul is telling Timothy something brand new here in the year 61, 62 AD. He assumes that Timothy doesn't know what to do with this situation. Okay? I've just, I, I built a small little foundation for what I want to say next. How long has Timothy been with Paul at this time? In 61, 62. How long has he been with him? How long has he traveled as his companion? and been to every church service and planted every church with Paul. How long has he been with him? A minimum of 10 years. Don't you think that in that 10 years time, Timothy would have known Paul's view on women? He'd heard Paul preach hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. issue is that Paul is not giving standard information to Timothy. He's telling Timothy something that he had never encountered before in Ephesus. Women trying to take over. Just a certain, in fact, he says a woman, not women in plural. It was probably one woman, a strong woman. I've met a few. I like strong women. But there's some who, they're intimidating. <laughs> Have you met an intimidating lady? Yeah, and Timothy, as we know, is, see, he's an introvert. And, and Paul says, man, you've got to fight the good fight. And part of that means, what? Telling false teachers to stop and preventing these women from time to take over. That's not the view you've heard all your life. But Paul is using this word because there's no other word available to describe what's happening. Does Paul use the standard word for authority? He does, 28 times. But he doesn't use it here. He uses a different word. Why? Because it was a different situation. 
This rule would apply to men too. If a, if a man has not learned and submitted himself to the doctrine of the scriptures, he can't teach either. In fact, I would say that if you go on Christian social media today, Christian television, the majority of those men should not be teaching. They are unqualified. They're great on talent and savvy and media, but they don't know what they're talking about. Listen to two sentences that come out of their mouth and you realize they don't know anything about Christ. This message is not about Christ. I just wish the Christian television just would be shoved into the deepest pit because most people are unqualified to teach. Uh, I'm not going to go there. but It's the same in the music industry. Christian musicians don't know the scriptures very well. I know they, they, they market well. And people focus on talents, but God does never focus on talent. He focuses on likeness to his son. Humble. Working with the poor. Working with the marginalized. The people that society kicks to, kicks to the curb. All right. We've looked at two passages. And we've tried to put them together and say, what do we do? One contradicts the other. Well, just like the two firearm experts or the two groups of experts, what do you do? You investigate. You look under the magnifying glass to say, okay, what does it really say? And what is apparent is that when you have one verse that's clear and another verse that's not quite so clear, what should be your trump card? Or, let me transpose it. If you were trying to prove your case in court about the innocence of somebody, who would you choose as your best witness? Who would you put on the stand if you were an attorney? The one with the weakest argument or the one with the strongest and the clearest and most consistent argument? What would you do? And if I was putting some verse on the stand, what would I do? I would put Colossians 3.16 on the stand. Why? Because there's no problems with the verse. And we know every single word in the verse, and it's as plain as the nose on the end of my face. Men and women need to have the word about Christ basically fill their lives. That qualifies them to teach and to admonish each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, Verse 5 and 26, when you assemble together, each of you has a, what? Teaching, same word. Each of you has a teaching. How many? Each of you. Who does that mean? It means each of you. <laughs> Hebrews 5.14, Paul says, or not Paul, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but let's just say Paul. By this time you ought all to be teachers, but you're slow in your ability to hear the word of God. You've got to hear problems. You all should be teachers. Isn't that something? All right. Time perhaps to think practically about what this passage might have to say to us. Since um, the church is not united in its role or its view of the role of women in church and home and society, I regard that this issue is not worth dividing over. I don't. Some people do. Some people get up in arms and get really mad. 
about the role of women. And I have, I have some scars on my body <laughs> on this issue. Some people really get mad. In fact, some of the nastiest things I've ever heard from people is about this issue. I don't believe it's a cause for dividing. Therefore, let me say some things. First of all, the role of women in Jesus' church matters to him. Jesus cares about this matter. Jesus cares about women in his church. It matters a great deal to him. Now, if you're a man, you might say, eh, I don't care about this issue. I'm a man. Big deal. If women have a problem, fine. But don't get me involved. I'm not going to contribute to helping get a level playing field. But I would suggest to you that when Paul wrote to the Philippian church in chapter 2 and wanted to urge unity of the church, he said what? Consider other interests as more important than your own. And in this case, I would say to my brothers, I'd include me, men, we need to care about the interests of women. It matters to Jesus. It needs to matter to men. Men, this is an important matter. Let's put it up higher in our priority list to make sure that we live, that we listen to women and we listen to what they have to say and we value their teaching and we value them as people. It matters to Jesus. Let it matter to the men here in the church. We are called to treat women as more important than us. And if 50% of Jesus' church is gagged on these issues, that should be a concern to us. It's a concern for me. Let me ask you about women here. In your church that you grew up in, women, were your interests valued by the men in leadership? Did the men in leadership in your church value the opinions and the views and the teachings of women? Or were they simply relegated to the, to the kitchen? Make cookies. That's where you belong. Or men, let's ask you. When you grew up in your church, what did the men do in terms of setting an example? Did the men set a good example? Did they pay attention to the little girls and the teenage girls? Did they pay attention to the women, the older women, the younger women? Did they pay attention? Did the men in your church do that and set a good example? Or did your dad listen to your mother? And did your dad listen to your sisters? Or was it all about the guys? Was it all about the guys and their opinions? If the family was going to do something and the guys wanted to go to a football game and the girls wanted to do something else, did the guys always win the trump? What example did we set? It's a good word for us as fathers if we have daughters. That what my daughter has to say and what my wife has to say matters. And I'm going to train my ears to listen to them and make sure that she understands that I respect what she says and I don't look down on her as an inferior person. 
Secondly, is it wise to base our whole view on the role of women on one verse? Is it wise when the rest of Scripture mitigates against that view? Is it wise to just pin our entire case on one verse which is filled with controversy and says something, in fact, different in the Greek text? Is it wise to do that? The state rested their entire case on the testimony of one man who was legally blind. <laughs> and they sentenced a man to death. The Bible says the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into his harvest field. Wow. But don't send 50%. 50% of that, those laborers can't say anything. Can't teach. Doesn't make sense, does it? Finally, most of us here perhaps were raised with a conservative package, right? We were raised with a conservative package. What does that mean? It means we were raised in an environment where there was only one voting alternative, one party, one view of women, one view of a whole lot of issues. We were raised in that, we, we were born into that, we swam in that, and I would dare say we do not know how much that has impacted us how it's impacted our views on racism, the poor, homelessness, women. Uh, I have a, a document here. I'm not going to read it all, but it's from a manual for teachers in the largest Protestant domination in the world and in the U.S. It's instructions from 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15. And as I look at it, this is for the teacher, not the students. And this has been read literally by millions of teachers. I realize that, I mean, this is bad. <laughs> it is unbelievably bad. Evangelical, Protestant, read by millions. Here's an example of how that conservative package influences us. The standard argument is, if Jesus was a male, then all his leaders should also be male. And at first we hear that and think, oh, that sounds reasonable. Jesus was not a female. Jesus was a male. Therefore, all the leaders in the church should be male. Let's look behind that statement. Let's look behind it. If you're going to require that all the leaders of the church have to be male, then if we're going to follow Jesus, you also have to be a Jewish male who's not married, who's homeless, who spoke Greek and Aramaic, and who hung out with Jewish fishermen and tax collectors. I've never read anybody who takes those factors into consideration. You see how how some of those statements that you were raised with don't make any sense. It's really fundamentally a mischievous and a dishonest response to what Scripture is telling us here. What matters is for us to recognize the 
package that we've been delivered growing up and to recognize it and to take out what is simply tradition of the church and to stick with scripture. That's inspired. That's guaranteed to lead us to the truth. I hope that what has happened this morning is that we are able to see there is a way through verses that seem to contradict, but it requires careful examination. It requires putting verses under the magnifying glass to say, what is Paul really saying? Um, Anthony Ray Hinton's case looked like it was dead in the water. For eight years, the state refused to allow the new evidence to be presented in court. They knew the compelling evidence of the three gun experts. They refused for eight years to bring it to court and let it be known. Even the state Supreme Court denied the request. So Brian Stevenson took it to the US Supreme Court. All nine justices read what happened, immediately ruled together, unanimously, that Anthony Ray Hinton's case needed to be brought to the light. They ordered it. And when the district attorney in the state looked at that order from the Supreme Court, he realized, if I allow that information, that new information, that the three gun experts have uncovered, if I allow that into the light, we're going to look stupid. We're going to look like we made a mistake. <laughs> we're going to look dumb. We're going to look like we've sent a man to prison for 30 years and to the electric chair who is innocent. We can't do that. We'll just let him go quietly and hopefully no one will know. So the state quietly released Anthony Ray Hinton without ever bringing it back to trial because they wanted to what? Save face. Justice Stephen Breyer of the US Supreme Court said this about this case. If this court, referring to the Supreme Court, if this court had not ordered that Anthony Ray Hinton receive further hearings in state court, he may well have been executed rather than exonerated. And Brian Stevenson said about this, race, poverty, inadequate legal assistance, and prosecutorial indifference to innocence conspired to create a textbook example of injustice. I can't think of a case more urgently that dramatizes the need for reform than what happened to Anthony Ray Hinton. His case is not unique. His case goes on all the time, especially in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. I say today that the church needs to reform on its role of women. The church needs to reform its view of the opinions and the teaching of women. We need to hear from women. We need to hear what they have to say. We need to respect what they have to say and learn from them. After all, Paul said what? Let the word of Christ 
but dwell among you all richly as you what? Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. That's what needs to happen. And I ask you to help us to make the church reform. At least let's start here and leave the results to God. Thank you for listening. Please stand. Please pray. Father, we have made many mistakes ourselves in what we've said and how we've interpreted your word. Forgive us. We are all learners. We remain learners for the rest of our lives. And you've been patient with us. We need to be patient with those with whom we disagree. We don't want to demonize them. We want to enjoy an amicable discussion, a joint learning. And I pray that eventually the church will be in agreement and unity on this issue. Meanwhile, we can do our part. Help us to know what that is. What steps we need to take here to let reform take its course with regard to the role of men and women. We want to be that community of teachers, admonishers, and worshipers. We want to be that community that's informed by Jesus Christ and his word, to be drenched with Christ. I mean, what better thing could ever happen to us than to be drenched with the word about Christ? After all, he is not only our Lord and Savior, but he's our creator and our future judge. It'll be a good day to be able to answer him that day when our life has been filled with his word. To that end, we pray through Christ.